You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. If you have your Bible, why don't you open up to Hebrews chapter 2. We continue in our series going through the book of Hebrews. We'll be in here for, for a few months, um, actually quite a while, pretty much till Easter, or no, till summer. We're just going to keep going until we're done, <laughs> and then we'll read the the maps. Um, Hebrews chapter 2. I want to get into our passage today without much introduction and then, and then kind of unpack it and hear God's word um, together. There's a lot to cover today, uh, but I am encouraged um, by what God has to say to us, and, and I hope you will be too. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 to 13. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels God, that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man, you're mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to, his, to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering." For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. This is God's word. You know, this is a kind of difficult passage uh, today, a difficult topic today to really discuss together. If you haven't uh, seen what I mean already from reading this passage, you'll see it pretty soon. This passage is a warning about apostasy. Apostasy is that fancy theological word that means um, a confessing Christian that drifts away from Jesus and eventually finds him or herself in a state of unbelief and disobedience. Having once tasted of the good news and confessed Christ, later having nothing to do with him. This ultimately re results in a renouncing of their faith and a departure of Christ and a forfeit of eternal life. You know, there are a handful of memories that come to mind, a handful of friends who come to mind, friends that I have prayed with in the past uh, friends I've gone to church with, people that I have um, done evangelism with, people that we have gone out and shared our faith with non-believers, who have gotten to a place in their life today that have said, 
I just don't believe that stuff anymore. I bet you have someone or some people in your life. I bet you have stories just like that. Maybe people you grew up with in church. Maybe some you've studied with. Maybe, you've got, maybe you have uh, had wonderful experiences. You've grown together as Christians and you've been heartbroken to see them wander from Christ. Maybe for some, I'm sure we saw it coming. Like we might have said, well, that was no surprise. I kind of saw the writing on the wall. They were kind of going in that direction. And for others, you might say, there's no way. That was the last person I would have thought that I would have walked away from Jesus. Here's why this is a difficult topic today. And this passage is really difficult for us. There's a bit of a warning here. It's, it's a sober reflection and, and, um, on the reality and truth of what happens. There are people in this room, perhaps. There are people at this church. There are people in your life. There are people who claim to be Christians who will drift away and forfeit their only hope of salvation. If only we had special goggles kind of to figure out who those people would be, right? That would make I think my job a little easier if I put on these goggles and say, okay, now I can see who will drift away from Jesus. Consider Judas. Judas was a disciple of Jesus, one of the 12 who walked with him and heard of, his, of the truth of the gospel, who saw the miracles, who witnessed all these signs and wonders, who confessed allegiance to him and ultimately betrayed Jesus. And the night of Jesus' arrest, and his subsequent crucifixion the next day. Jesus was having dinner with his disciples, and all the disciples gathered, and he looked at his disciples and said, someone here will betray me. And none of the disciples, this is what is strange, right? We look at Judas and say, it was obviously Judas. None of the disciples said, well, he's talking about Judas. Awkward. Do you know what we are told in the gospels what happened? The disciples discussed among themselves and asked themselves, is it going to be me? Is he talking about me? I thought the message of Jesus was supposed to be, you know, secure in God's love. I thought it was supposed to be one of forgiveness, supposed to make us feel like peace and comfort. But now, sometimes the message makes us feel uncomfortable and scared and vulnerable. Sometimes it makes us feel insecure that we know that the scriptures tell us that there will be some who are part of the, the visible church, those who are among the, the, the visible people of God who will, when Jesus comes to earth and confronts them, Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And they will be devastated. They will be grieved. And sometimes it will not be obvious. So which is it? What, what does God's, what does the good news, how, what is it supposed to make us feel? Is it supposed to make us feel encouraged and secure? And is it supposed to make us feel comfort? Or is it supposed to make us feel a bit uncomfortable and challenged and a little bit warned? The answer is yes. <laughs> It does both of these things. Why should we pay attention, as the writer of Hebrews tells us? Because this passage is not about other people. 
We are not to see, okay, who should, I, who should I then be warned about? What kinds of people are in my life that are drifting so that I can you know, stay away from them? Now, of course, we should have these eyes of compassion and confrontation with fellow Christians in our life who appear to be drifting. We should confront them in love and courage and bring them back to the truth of the gospel. But this passage is not about other people who drift. The topic for today is how do we look into our own hearts and pay attention to the warning and the encouragement that we find in God's word, because we will find both warning and encouragement. And so it's hard for us, but, but this is the invitation of, of God's word, and my invitation to you today is, will you look into your own heart and pay attention to both the warning and the encouragement offered in God's word? And our passage will guide us in how to do that. How to do both, and here is how. And, and how it shows us to do this is that three things. We, we need a smaller view of self, we need a bigger view of God, and we need a deeper view of the gospel. Let's go into those together. First, we need a, a smaller view of self. You know, our passage starts off with this imperative followed by a, a reason and then followed by a rhetorical question. Play, pay close attention to the message of Jesus. That's the command, that's the imperative. Why? Uh, because so that you don't drift. And then the rhetorical question is, because if you drift from it, what hope of salvation do you have apart from it? Pay close attention, because we are prone to drift. Because if you forfeit this, then you have no hope of salvation. To say we need a smaller view of self is not to say that we need to put ourselves down or to neglect our own uh, welfare and care. Our passage touches on the reality of the human ego. This passage begins kind of talking about our vulnerability and how we are prone to drift, that we have weakness in our lives. We often have this overinflated view of ourself, a, a prideful view of our capacity to live within our confession. We look at the sins of other people and we say, well, I won't do that. I'm, I'm walking with Jesus. I confess my faith. Like, I'm secure. I'm, I'm steadfast. Like, I'm, I'm on steady ground. I'm going to be okay. So these warnings in Scripture are for other people, weaker people. Not so fast. This touches on the, the, the inflated human ego that we think that when the Bible talks about those who wander from Jesus, it must be talking about other people. We often see someone fall into sin and our immediate response is one of judgment because we don't think we are capable of such failure. Why should we pay attention? Because we are prone to drift. In wanting to drive home the importance of, of paying close attention, the author uses this vivid metaphor of a ship uh, drifting off course or a ship that has been uh, tied to a dock that at night has become loosened and unraveled and just drifts off into the sea. One little distraction doesn't feel like much. Uh, you know this if you've ever been on a lake or in the ocean or in some large body of water. Uh, a, little bit of, uh, a little bit of movement doesn't seem like much, but if you're going in one direction and you have fo your focus on your destination of where you want to be, and you're a little bit off course, it's okay. And a little bit more off course, it's okay. 
But further and further down the line, you realize that you're miles away from where you wanted to be. And this is what happens in our life. This is how we are prone to drift. Often not in these huge monumental catastrophes of rebellion in our life, but in these subtle, daily giving in to small temptations, desires, small acts of rebellion, small acts of disobedience. The trajectory of our drifting leaves us so far from where our desired destination is. Not long ago, uh, took the kids fishing on uh, Patagonia Lake. And it's, it's not an enormous body of water, but it's pretty windy out there, and so there's a lot of drifting. And it was the first time kind of doing that with the kids, and it was, they got to learn a lesson about drifting. Because we would go to a spot, they're like, go to this spot, there's lots of fish there, right? They had this in- intuition, right? All this fish, go there. And so we would go there, and I'd stop the power to the motor, and then we would fish. And then they would do that for five, 10 minutes, and then we'd look up, we'd be like just 20 feet off the shore. And they're like, what happened? I told you not to move. And so we had a little lesson on drifting. Well, this, the wind pushes us and it drifts. It's slowly, you don't see it at first, but after a little while, this is what happens. Drifting happens easily, and it, and it happens without us often realizing it. In each of our hearts, there's a part of us that is drawn to things other than Jesus. We are meant to, to pay attention to those things. We are meant to be honest with ourselves. We are meant to have this smaller, smaller view of ourselves rather than this inflated ego thinking that, no, oh, I'm okay. I, I do right things. I don't fail like those people. I'm, I'm, I'm secure. I'm, I'm good. I've got my confession. I have my spiritual disciplines. But left to ourselves, we will drift. Because there's a, hunt, there's a headwind in our hearts and a headwind in our world that is constantly pushing us away from where Jesus wants us to go. It's very easy to talk about the headwind in our culture that is opposed to the values and purposes of Christ. Christians are really good at talking about that, and we should talk about that. We should notice those things. But there is a headwind in our own hearts that does the same thing that is prone to be against and to drift from the values and purposes of Christ. To gain a smaller view of self is to admit more honestly to ourselves and to others that we are not as good as we often think we are. That we are more dependent on Christ every moment. It means confronting that that complex web of impulses and desires and dreams and passions and hopes and behaviors of sin in your life. It means confronting those things, and it is complex, and it is often not so obvious. Special attention needs to be given to it. The Bible calls this our flesh, our sin nature, that is constantly at battle within, uh, the, with the, the fruit of the Spirit, with the Spirit of God. And we know this, that when we don't give special attention to our health, we will slowly drift and become the people that we don't want to be. Think about your physical health. If you're healthy, and tonight you just binge on a, you know, a Little Caesars calzone or something. I don't know if they have calzones, but that sounds awesome right now. You're not, you're not going to ruin your health. 
If you do that the next night, you're probably going to feel not great. If you keep doing that every night, you're, you're going to create a habit and a trajectory for your physical health. If you stop working out and eating healthy, do you stay the same or do you drift? Think about your emotional health. If you slowly do not hold captive your thoughts, do you slowly drift? Do you stay the same or do you drift into an emotional unhealth? Think about relational health. What happens to friendships where you do not proactively stay connected and pursue? Do you stay the same? You drift. You drift apart from one another. What happens in your marital health if you stop pursuing each other? What happens to gospel health if we stop proactively pursuing and paying attention to our health with our relationship with God? Do we stay the same? We drift. Here are some of the things that might cause us to drift in our life. I'm sure you have a list. Suffering can do it. Some of these things are outside of our control. It's not always a result of our deliberate sin and rebellion. It can be something that happens to us. Suffering, heartache, loss, grief can cause us to not pay attention to the struggle in our hearts. Busyness can do it as well. We get so busy that we forget to pay attention of what God is doing in our hearts and how our impulses, how our desires, how our passions and dreams and hopes and fears, how our loves are taking control of our life. Competing affections. Right? We hold in our hands like things that we want and then things that God wants for us and, and we have these competing affections in our life. Unrepentant sin. We have this sin that we know that God has called us to confess of and to turn from, and we delay in that. That will cause drifting. We all have areas of our life where we wished we had listened to warning in our life where we, we look back and say, I wish I would have taken that advice, right? And so this warning is given to us so that we can pay attention to it. You think of some of those things, I don't need any examples, but just consider the things in your life. I wish I would have taken that advice. Five years ago when Bitcoin was $19, and now it's like $54,000 a share or something. Oh, I wish I would have taken that advice. You know, when you, were when you were told to be careful about your alcohol consumption, but you thought you can control it. When you were warned about overspending, and now you're tens of thousands of dollars in debt when you were warned about the dangers of temptation, whatever it is, but you thought that you can control it, you can keep it safe, you can manage it, you could keep the sin away from damaging your life, and now you're in a place that you never thought you would be, and you ask yourself, how did I get here? It happens through drifting. Do you realize that if you do not pay attention to your spiritual condition, it will deteriorate all on its own? And that is what this passage is about. Do you realize that given the corrupt nature of the world and given the corrupt nature and deceitful nature of our own heart, you naturally become dull and deadened spiritually, steadily believing in the lies of this world that it has to tell you. And without being proactively devoted in our hearts, we will revert to things like gossip and greed and pride, and hatred, and sexual immorality, all those characteristics that define a person whose heart is far from God. 
And the exhortation is to stand firm, to pay attention. And it's here we wrestle with this tension here in this passage. And tension really in all of God's word. Here is the tension. To be sure, the Bible teaches the eternal security of all true believers in Jesus Christ. Jesus teaches us himself. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will take them out of my hands. And I lose none that God has given to me. It is true that we are secure through faith in Jesus and a genuine believer will never be lost. Yet it is also true that all who give profession of faith and people who show up at church and who are in a Bible study are not true believers. We are secure through faith in Jesus Christ, but like a good tree, true faith is revealed by its fruit. We are told to be diligent in our faith. We are told to examine ourselves. We are told to persevere. We are told to confess and repent of sins. We are told to keep a close watch on our heart. And it is through this faithfulness and obedience that fruit is born in our life that gives evidence of the faith that we hold so dear. And it's through warnings like this that God uses to bring about his purposes in our life. He warns us, we pay close attention to our lives, we respond in faith, and God brings about his purposes. And he says, don't neglect that. Knowing that we're prone to drift and take this warning seriously is a, is a first important step. And, and another step to gain is to gain this bigger view of God. So we talked about this small view of self. We shouldn't inflate our ego. We should know that we are prone to drift and it's a reality, but now we need to have a bigger view of God. It's possible that our carelessness in faith is sometimes the result of not paying attention to our ability to drift. And so sometimes we come into sin and we say, I didn't realize that that I had that ability and that was, I was that weak and I need to pay more attention to myself. But maybe for some of us, it's more likely, it's possible that our carelessness is, is rooted in a misunderstanding of who God is. God is holy. God is just. God holds people accountable for their sins. Sometimes our carelessness is a result of just thinking, well, God's, God's okay with that. God loves me and he knows I'm trying and he knows this is hard and uh, Jesus loves me and died for my sins. And so, you know, we kind of have this agreement where I'm going to work hard and do my best and God's going to be patient with me. Our one response to this warning could be, well, I'm not that sinful. I don't struggle that much and the warning just isn't for me. But another response could be, God doesn't care that much. He's not that strict. He doesn't hold people accountable. He loves, he forgives. He generally has an attitude towards us like a coach or a kindergarten teacher that, who really just wants us to try our best in this life. And that's what matters most to him. Just try your hardest and do good. Well, let's look a little deeper into verse two just to make you feel better. <laughs> For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? 
Here's what the writer is wanting to communicate to us as it relates to God. Didn't God hold people accountable in the Old Testament for their sins, for their rebellion, for not receiving his word? And he's kind of asking, have you heard the stories? So let me just ask you this question. Your perception of the Old Testament, did God hold people accountable for their failure to do what he said? Yes, right? I mean, that's like kind of what all the Old Testament is about, it feels like. Yes, he did. And what we're prone to say is, oh, that's the Old Testament. God was angry back then. God was angry back then. He was serious about sin. We live in the New Testament era. Like daddy is asleep now and Jesus came and and he's the nice one. And it's like Jesus came on the scene and he's like, okay, God, like, Have a Snickers bar. I got it from here. Like, man, calm down a little bit. I love you guys. Everything is okay. We have this idea that the Old Testament was God was angry. The New Testament, God is kind and nice. But here's the message of Hebrews. We're reading from the New Testament, okay? This is the New Testament. Here's what we read. The Old Testament message was delivered by angels and by prophets And God held them accountable for neglecting that message and not taking him seriously. And all of Hebrews is about, and Jesus is better than them. His message is better than them. Don't you think he'll hold you accountable even more now than before? God says, I sent you my son as a sacrifice to die, and I will hold you accountable to how you respond to him. There's a heaviness to this. And here is the argument. If God held people accountable for rejecting a message in the Old Testament that was foggy, incomplete, filled with shadows and types and allegories and metaphors, and wasn't really clear, how much more will God judge his people after giving them a message that is crystal clear, complete, and and by whose death and resurrection displays the glory and true identity of Jesus Christ? The answer is much more. If God holds us accountable when his prophets and angels are rejected, how will he feel when his son is rejected? One more metaphor. (laughs) It's actually a metaphor from Scripture, from New Testament. Jesus tells it himself. It's a metaphor used in the Bible about the parable of the vineyard. And here is how it goes. Jesus tells this story, and in the vineyard, in the field, Jesus has his employees, uh, I'm sorry, the, the master of the field has his employees working. And the master of the field sends a servant to go to the employees to recover the harvest. Go and and receive from them the crop that they have harvested. The servant goes and the vineyard workers beat up the servant. And so the master sends another servant. And the vineyard workers receive that servant, beat him up and murder him. And he sends another servant. And the vineyard workers reject him and say, get out of here, we're done with you, we don't want to hear it again. And so the master says, they're not listening to my servant, I'm going to send my son. 
He sends his son to the field to gather an account for their work, and they kill him. And the question is, how do you think the master's going to feel if he was angry when you killed his servants? How are you going to feel when they rejected his son? That's what the New Testament is about. Nowhere in the Bible are we given permission to have the view of God where he's angry and filled with the wrath in the Old Testament and kind and loving in the New Testament where he takes our sins lightly. There's one God, one creator, one sustainer of all things, and the one to whom all people and things will give an account one day. And verse 8 tells us it's Jesus. It is Jesus. He left Nothing outside of his control, nothing outside of his complete control. It's all for Jesus. It's all from Jesus. It's all by Jesus. It is all about Jesus. And the New Testament doesn't diminish in the slightest bit God's holiness and demand for obedience. In fact, it enhances it. So, so what are we to say to people who are overwhelmed with this reality? The sense of their own sin, the sense of their own failures, the sense of their own imperfections and weaknesses, the sense that they have drifted, the sense they've disobeyed, and they cannot stand before, one, uh, before God in the confidence according to their own work, their own accord, their own record. The God who commands such obedience offers himself as the solution to their disobedience. As much as this passage talks about the justice of God, his demand for holiness, and the, the fact that we will be held accountable also, te- also tells us how we can escape it. You know how we can? Here, he is our rescue. How are we forgiven? If we reject Jesus, we can't be. If we accept Jesus, we can be. Verse nine, verse 9, highlight this in your Bible, highlight it in the journals you have, uh, get it tattooed on your chest. I don't care what you do. So keep this in your mind here, okay? We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned in glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by grace, of God, he might taste death for everyone. This reality, this message needs to be drilled so deeply into our hearts, so deeply into our lives. We often neglect the fact that God holds people accountable and we should feel the burden of that and also the encouragement and hope that is offered to us for all who want to find rescue from it. Because who among us have, has not drifted? Who among us has not sinned? Who among us has not, who has not neglected to receive the message of God from his son and follow it as he has commanded? We have all sinned. No one is righteous. No one honors God as we should. And there is rescue. There is hope. And this is where we need a deeper view of the gospel. God hates sin so much, and he must punish sin with the full weight of his anger. But he loves you so much that he's willing to send his own son, not to collect the debt that we owe him, but to pay it himself. And the payment was with his death. 
We are far more sinful than we can imagine, but far more love than we ever dreamed. This is the gospel. This is the good news. The good news is not God holds people accountable for their sin, so make sure from now on you are the best Christian that you can be. That's not good news, that's bad news. We will find ourselves always falling short. The good news is that if we accept Jesus, that we rest in him, that the God who demands righteousness is the same one who offers rescue to us. That, when, that we must, the good news that we must pay attention to, must pay attention to, is not the good news of our ability and not the good news of becoming better. It is the good news of what Jesus has done for us. You know, what, what have we been saying about the book of Hebrews the last couple weeks? We've been saying that Jesus is greater than everyone and everything for all times. No one is better than Jesus. There's no other way to salvation. There is no other option. There is no plan B. And this passage really highlights that clearly. He says there's no other way. This is, this is God's plan. This is his plan A. There's no other option. If we reject Jesus, then we, God holds us accountable to our sin. If we accept him, we have his forgiveness. And, it, and it, it is a passage like this that means to do two things for us. And it is this. It will break the comfortable and it will comfort the broken. What do I mean by comfortable? Those who have the mind of, oh, I'm okay. I know I'm sinning. I know that there's things in my life that I should do differently. But look at where I have come from. Look at how good I've done. Look at how I've improved. God is working with me. He's patient with me. This warning isn't for me. It's for other people because I'm, I'm a Christian and I trust in Jesus. God and I have an agreement. The agreement is I try to be good to others and he forgives me when I fail. You know, those who think that the warnings in the Bible about drifting about other people and not themselves, those are the ones who are kind of comfortable in their faith that causes them not to pay attention, pay close attention to their passions and desires and their disobedience in their life. And this passage means to make you feel a little uncomfortable, to break you, to show you that your view of yourself is too big. Your view of God is way too small. And we are called to repentance that we need to turn from our sin. We need to cry out for God's mercy because he holds us accountable. Who are the broken? Those who read a passage like this and are cut to the heart and say, I wish passages like this in the Bible didn't exist because when it talks about people who are prone to drift, I feel like it's talking about me. I'm prone to drift. My heart is so easily deceived. My affections are so easily hijacked. The broken are those who, are the, those who know that they are prone to sin, have a track record of failure, failure after failure. The failure has caused them to feel so uh, a lack of self-compassion, a lack of hope. And in deep awareness of their need and rescue for God, they cry out and say, is there any hope for a person like me? Can I have any security? Can I have any hope? Can I have any confidence in this life and in the life to come. And God's reply to the broken is this. Look at my son. He tasted death for you. Trust him. He tasted death. He went to battle with your worst nightmare. 
and he did not fail. Where you failed, he succeeded. The gospel message demands our careful attention because if we reject it, we have no hope. But if we rest in it, our hope will never be taken away. These really are the two scenarios that we are faced with. We look for ways to try to deal with sin all the time without Jesus. We try to work harder. We try to rest in our personal piety. We compare ourselves to others. We get to a place where we feel pretty good about how things are going. And there's no other way other than Jesus. God's love for you is the impulse behind the death of Jesus. He loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God's grace is the power behind your rescue. God's joy is the ultimate motivation behind all the sorrows of Christ. Jesus endured a life of rejection, alienation, betrayal, sorrow, grief, and ultimately death. And that wasn't even the worst of it. To feel the wrath of God, the hatred of God, the punishment of God for our sins, and he never did anything wrong. Do you know what it feels like to be treated poorly when it wasn't your fault? The injustice of it all. We demand justice when we are treated poorly, and yet Christ was treated as a sinner and yet obeyed his father perfectly. And he did that all for us. How will you respond to a God like that? How will you respond to a God like that? There's only one way. Trust him. Follow him. Believe in him. Obey him. Worship him and rest in him.